Good morning, church. If you would open your Bible to John's Gospel, chapter 4, we're going to study God's Word together and as we continue to move through this Gospel of John. Guests who are with us, it's such a joy to have you here. Thanks for, for spending some time with us this morning. We've been walking through the Gospel of John. It's going to be a 16-week series covering 21 chapters, so that brings us to, uh, to John, chapter 4. There are many glorious, famous, legendary moments in John's gospel. For me personally, John 4 is one of the few uh, highest peaks of the glory of Jesus. That's just my own personal, I just love this text. I'm grateful to God that this text is here in scripture for us, recorded for us so that we can look at it and find out what Jesus is like in all of his glory. So if you're there in John chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. So you can see the destination. He's starting in Judea, and he's ultimately aiming at Galilee. Verse 4, he had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. That's 2,000 years prior to this. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to drink water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. 
When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say, there are still four more months and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Do you live as if your present location is meant to be a place of ministry? That's what we mean by living, live sent. Do you live as though your present, current location is a place to which God has sent you on mission? You know, our friends over at the BMBA, Birmingham Metro Baptist Association, generated a report that estimates that there are over 446,000 unchurched people in Shelby County and Jefferson County, right here. Nearly a half a million people who are close to us Physically, close to us, from far, but far from God. Close to us, but far from God. The question is, what are we gonna do about it? Like, the question is, has God sent the church of Brook Hills and planted us in the city of Birmingham, Alabama for a reason? Does it have anything to do with the communities in which we live and where we gather and where we work and where we play. Look, this campus and, and the campus development project is going on and all that's coming along, right? This campus, just to be clear, is meant to be a launching pad. It's been that for many years. It's been a launching pad for training and equipping the saints for the work of ministry in this city and beyond this city to the ends of the earth. And we want to see that continue. We want to see people right here who are close to us from, but far from God. We want to see them moved from lost to found, but not to stop there. We want to, them to move all the way from the category of lost to the category of found to the category of those who are found are finders. Those are moving full circle from spiritually lost to spiritually leading. And that's what you see happening here in John chapter four. This woman comes and she's lost and then she's found and then she runs back to Sychar and she starts finding people. She starts bringing them back to Jesus. She's come full circle in this short period of time. Jesus has done such a work 
as we rehearse this story, I hope we're going to pick up along the way some clues about how to live as though our present location is meant to be a place of mission. And so we're going to notice a number of things about Jesus. And the first is this. As Jesus lived sent, as he lived on mission, Jesus ignored the rules about who he was supposed to avoid. He ignored the rules about who he was supposed to avoid. So a quick word about setting, Jesus and his disciples, again, as you saw, so we're reading through the text, they're, they're bound for Galilee in the north, they're leaving from Judea, which means that if you're going to get the straightest line from Judea to Galilee, it's going to take you right through Samaria. They've been walking for hours through this desert region. You can see there's basically the geography of the things, bound from Jerusalem to Nazareth, and the clearest cut way to go is right through Sychar in Samaria. Now, so just a side note that is clear in various ways in our text is the Jews hated the Samaritans. They so deeply hated the people in Samaria that if they needed to go from the population center in Judea to the population center of Jews in Galilee, they would sometimes walk all the way around. We've got a picture of that. They would walk across the Jordan and go north. This is an extra two days of the journey. I mean, how much do you have to hate people to travel two extra days one way just to not step foot in their town, in the place where they live? That's what they typically did. And Jesus says, we're bound for Galilee in the north, but we got to go through Sychar first. He is intentionally going through Samaria. Jews didn't associate with Samaritans, and that had a long backstory. I mean, deep into their history, centuries and centuries before when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split, and the northern kingdom apostatized very quickly and forsook God and ditched his word and ditched faithfulness to him and built their own mountain. They, they forgot Jerusalem. They forgot Zion. They, they, they said, who needs the temple? They built their own temple right there on Mount Gerizim, the mountain that we're standing on in this passage. They built their, their temple there. They just, and they intermarried with the nations, they, the Assyrians who conquered them in the northern kingdom. They intermarried with their idol-worshiping neighbors and they lost all their distinctiveness as God's faithful people for centuries and they blew it away. And th- those in the southern kingdom said, how could you do that? How could you turn your back on God and all of the history that we've had with him? It was shameful for Jews to so much as speak to Samaritans. As a matter of fact, there was a law in Judea that Jews couldn't eat from a bowl that had been touched by a Samaritan. Throw the bowl away. It's been touched by a Samaritan. That's how deep the rancor and toxicity was between these people groups. So you had basically two rules. Jews didn't talk to Samaritans, and rabbis didn't talk to women. And this woman is doubly shamed because she's a woman and she's a Samaritan. And it seems very unlikely because Jesus is both a Jew and a rabbi. So he is literally stepping on all the rules. She's a Samaritan and she's a woman, and I'm a Jew and I'm a rabbi, and I'm here to talk. And he pulls up a chair at the well of Jacob there in Samaria. And you can even see, she knows what the rules are. Look at verse 9. Jesus starts talking to her. Hey, give me some water. Verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She's basically saying, you know how these things go, right? You're not supposed to be talking to me for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She is, look, 
she's a bit chippy in this passage. She, she's prickly, she is direct, she's rough around the edges, right? And there seems to even be some backstory as to why that may be the case even in our text. So for example, she's probably not walking a half a mile up this mountain from her town in a desert area at noon in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, she's probably not walking up at that part of the day because it's convenient. Seems like there's a story here. Typically, village women in that part of the world, they would intentionally choose what time of day the village women agree, would all agree together, either in the cool of the evening or in the early morning, and together the women would walk up, and they would go up with their goats, and they would water their animals, and they, they would load up their pitchers, and they would come down with provisions for their families, but they would go in the cool of the evening, or they would go together in the morning. Why is she going by herself in utter solitude in the middle of the day when it's siesta time, and she's guaranteed not to see anybody? Exactly. There's a story. She comes at this time on purpose because she's guaranteed this is the one time of the day that I won't have to see those people avert their eyes. I won't have to see them pull their children in close. I won't have to hear them talking out of the sides of their mouths, those women about four husbands. Can you believe, right? God save our daughters. God, keep our sons from women like this. She's heard those snide remarks all her life. And so she says, I'm going to go when everybody's asleep. I'm going to go at the hottest part of the day. You know, I'm not sure that we can tell from this text if she's been the victim of a very broken system or if she was just a culprit from the beginning or if it's a mixture of both. You know, I read a book earlier this month, and it was a novel, it was a psychological thriller, and the main character in the book is, um, is a woman who has had a traumatic experience, and from the very first page, she is unrecognizable to herself because of this trauma, and she's increasingly unrecognizable to her friends because she, this trauma has led her to some coping mechanisms that are deeply broken and deeply unhealthy, and friends are pulling away from her and she doesn't recognize her own life. She gets on a train and she writes journals and diaries each day and after this day on the train, here's what she noticed. A man who looked at her on the train and she wrote this in her journal. His glance travels over me, over the little bottle of wine on the table in front of me. He looks away. There's something about the set of his mouth that suggests distaste. He finds me distasteful. I'm not the girl I used to be. I'm no longer desirable. I'm off-putting in some way. It's not just that I've put on weight or that my face is puffy from the drinking and the lack of sleep. It's as if people can see the damage written all over me. They can see it in my face, the way I hold myself, the way I move. Maybe the woman in John 4 is, is a bit chippy with Jesus because she's just done, right? She is fresh out of courtesy. She has seen so many disappointing looks. Everywhere she walks around town, this town is cruel, this day is hot, and she's, she's finished. And she's walking up this hill, she's sweating like crazy, and she's thinking, if I see, trust me, I've had my share of disappointing glances. Trust me, I'm good in that department. 
That's her feeling. That's her psychology. Jesus had a category, you know, that, that sometimes we lack as Christians. Oftentimes we lack as Christians. Christians sometimes have a way of assuming that sexually broken people are high-handed sinners. All of them. You're into that. You're a vixen and you know it. You like this stuff. Why do you like this stuff? We, we assume that, right? When often the case is just the opposite. They would give anything to be free. Anything to be free. You ever felt trapped in something and you can't remember when it changed from you having hold of it to it having hold of you? You ever, you ever been broken by life? You ever felt sin that was too strong for you. There, there are people that you know who won't come to Jesus because they think they know him. What they don't know about Jesus is that Jesus is so tender with the broken. He is so tender with our bruised, blistering souls. Nobody's better at tenderness than Jesus. It was prophesied centuries in advance. This is how you'll know he's here. He's going to be the Messiah who doesn't break a reed that's bruised. And he doesn't put out a, a flax that's smoking, a wick that's just barely smoking. He'll just gently nurse it back to life. Pastor Richard Sibbs, born in 1577, he's one of my favorite writers of all time, and he made this comment about one of my favorite passages. This is a defining passage for us as a church. It's the passage that I preached when we talked about we welcome graciously, we pursue kindness. Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus' very first sermon that he chooses in Luke chapter 4 is Isaiah 61. This is Richard Sibbs' comment hundreds of years ago on verse 1 of Isaiah 61. These are the words from the text. He binds up the brokenhearted, and Sibbs writes, as a mother is tenderest toward the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest. You know, if you're feeling strong, that quote doesn't do anything for you. <laughs> but if you're feeling weak, it's heaven. <laughs> if you're feeling weak, it is the sun coming up. It is the breaking of the dawn. It is how you spell hope. It's telling you, you can breathe now. Right, Jesus is gonna find you and he's gonna come and you can quietly heal in his presence. That's what that text is telling us. He binds up the broken hearted. Wanna learn how to live sent, how to live on mission? Look what he does next. Number two, Jesus reached into hard places. He reached into hard places. There are some people in our lives <clears throat> and they have what, um, what one author calls passport that means you've given them a right to leave their world and enter your world. They can come in and they can say things nobody else can. They've got passport, right? Um, they can say hard things and you know they love you so much and they're so for you that, that they're saying it because they love you, even if it's not something you necessarily wanted to hear. My, my Aunt Becky was telling me recently about... Um, just a few weeks ago, she said I was going to have the girls over, her daughters and their husbands and then the grandkids, and she was going to have them all over to our house. This is typical Aunt Becky, and she's having them all over. Everybody come over, and I'm going to make a gumbo for you. And so she's making the gumbo, kids will be here soon, and the grandkids and everybody. Um, and she's like, I've made this gumbo a thousand times. And I'm there in the kitchen. <clears throat> she said, I reach into the cabinet, and I'm, you know, I'm on autopilot, and I grab the, an ingredient, and I just start dumping it into the gumbo. And she said, I didn't realize that it was the wrong ingredient. 
until the mixture of the savory smell of the gumbo combined with the sweet savor of vanilla extract. <laughs> and she's like, I didn't know how much I put in. I mean, I know the, the smell was fresh, but I didn't know if it was coming from what was left in the bottle or, or what. So she's like, I didn't want to waste all the gumbo. So I thought, let me just take a chance. Maybe they won't know. So she's like going to serve the, the vanilla extract gumbo. Um, and so my, my cousin Stephanie, her daughter, her oldest daughter, comes into the house, walks in to the kitchen, and immediately says, Mom, why does the gumbo smell like pancakes? <laughs> Look, you need some Christian friends who can say, your gumbo smells like pancakes. Right? That's like the most New Orleans way to talk about accountability ever. Like, your gumbo smells like pancakes. I mean, it's not, it's, nobody else is going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you, it just smells like pancakes around here, Right? Look, Jesus, he had this way of pulling people out of hiding, and once he did it, they came closer, <laughs> right? He, he didn't, they were exposed, but they didn't feel exploited. They, they felt loved and cared for. Somehow, he convinced them while he was unearthing the thing they've been trying to hide, while he's unearthing that, they become convinced his agenda is redemptive. He's not like the other ones. His agenda is redemptive. He, he had a way of not letting people hide sensitive places from him. And as this woman comes up to the well, he sees this big, giant, empty jar, and he says, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about water. And he knows this woman. The moment he lays eyes on her, he knows her story. You know, Jesus, we've already seen this, and we're going to see it again and again in John's gospel, and it happens many times in the gospels, where Jesus is illustrating a spiritual truth for just ordinary things. So he picks up bread, and he talks about him sustaining. He washes people's feet, and he talks about the cleansing work. He talks about branches, right? He picks up a plank, and... You know, that some of you have this sticking out of your eye, right? He's using ordinary things to illustrate really important spiritual truths. He knows what's broken in this woman's life. And so he, in the course of this conversation, he says, look, I, I started by asking you for water. I've, I actually have water. And if you drink the water I have, you'll never be thirsty again. He's, he's offering her this living water. She still is not picking up on what he's putting down, right? And so she says, okay, let me have this water. Where, where is this water, right? And she's looking around. And what does Jesus say? He says, okay, go call your husband. Right, this, is, this is Jesus putting his finger on that sensitive place in her life. He is, his finger is on her broken cistern. He said, this is what you've been drinking. This doesn't actually have anything in it, but I just want you to bring him back to me. This is him saying, I see the place you've been trying to hide from everybody. I see why it's there. And he's basically saying, I'm asking you to trust me. And what does she say? Verse 17, I don't have a husband. He says, that's, that's true. I know you don't have a husband. You've had five. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true, and what she says next is she says, well, let's talk about worship, and I used to think that her response in talking about which mountain she was supposed to worship on was an evasion technique, was her kind of ducking and covering and hurrying up and changing the subject, let's talk about worship wars, right, organs versus guitars, like let's talk about which mountain is holy, right, um, I, I don't think it's evasive 
anymore. The great New Testament commentator, Kent Hughes, puts it this way. When she brought up the controversy about worship, she was asking a question that was the result of her dawning perception of who he was and of her sin. She was evidently saying to herself, I am a sinner before God. I must bring God an offering for sin. But where do I take it? I think the reason that that interpretation is plausible is a couple of things. One, when people play games with words with Jesus, he's like, I'm out. I don't play games. We're not going to do the verbal gymnastics thing. If you don't want to deal honestly and authentically with my claims and the claims of my kingdom, I'm out of here. What happens in John chapter 18? He leaves Pilate hanging. Pilate literally, it's a low-hanging fruit. Pilate says, what is truth? And Jesus doesn't text him back. He literally just leaves the man hanging. It's not a real question. I don't have time. Same thing happens in Matthew chapter 21. Religious leaders gather around Jesus. They all whisper together. Let's ask him this question in public, and it's going to form a trap because he's not going to be able to answer one way or the other. They set their trap. It's not a genuine question, but they ask, hey, answer this question for us, rabbi. And Jesus sees the trap, and he springs one of his own. And he says, okay, i got a question for you. You answer mine, I'll answer yours. We'll go down together. And they said, we don't know the answer to your question. And he says, then this conversation is over. He is not playing around. He's not into verbal gymnastics. He doesn't have time for that. So I don't think she's playing verbal gymnastics because Jesus follows her right to her next topic. She wants to talk about worship. He says, this is perfect. Let's talk about worship. The other clue that maybe that's what's going on is Jesus never comes back to the husband question. That's where it was when we left and started talking about worship. He never comes back there. She's not playing games. She's saying yes. She's seeing who he is. That's why she says, I've heard the Messiah's coming. They say Messiah's coming and Jesus blows her mind. He says, I who am speaking to you, I'm he. And then he says, the father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The subtext is clear. The father's seeking you to worship him. And the mountain doesn't matter. You can do it right here on Mount Gerizim. In 2,000 years before this event, the hinge of all of biblical history takes place. Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man who's not looking for God. He comes to Abraham and he just starts making promises willy-nilly. I'm just, I'm gonna fill up your life. I'm your exceeding great reward. I'm gonna give you children like the stars, right? I'm gonna give you land. I'm gonna be everything for you. He's just making these promises and Abraham built an altar in Genesis chapter 12, and that altar is a mile and a half from this well. And here, all these years later, a woman who's not looking for God meets the Savior of the world, and everything changes, and she says, where do I start my worship? And Jesus says, right here on Gerizim. You can worship him in spirit and in truth. He turns a place of shame into a place of worship. Do you know the Jesus who looms large in John chapter four? Do you know the one who is tender with broken people? You know, we bring our guilt and shame to him. We bring the tenderest places in our lives 
to Jesus because we become convinced we can trust him. He's safe with this, these precious things. He's safe with this information. You know, the biblical word repentance, what does it mean? The biblical word for repentance is basically Jesus saying, I want to deal with the root of what's killing you, but I want you to bring it to me. I want you to name it. I want you to tell me where it is. And then what happens when we bring that thing to him? And we hand it over and he says, I die for this. <laughs> it's good news. That's a redeemer. That's on his calling card. He removes shame. And you know what else he says? He says, thank you for giving me this. Thank you for trusting me with this. By the way, this is not what you are anymore. You're not defined by this anymore. It's new now. It's a sense in which the words that are spoken right here at this well are, if anyone is in Christ, she is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. There was a hymn that was written 165 years ago. It would have worked perfectly for her to sing her way down the mountain back to town. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. Jesus ignored the rules about who he was supposed to avoid. Jesus reached into hard places. Third, Jesus was recharged by the mission. He's recharged by the mission. You know, he sits at this well in verse 6, and it says, you see those words, worn out from the journey. You see the genuine humanity of Jesus. He's not faking it. The man is tired. He's been walking through the desert in the Middle East for hours and hours from Judea to Galilee. And so he stays right here. He's got to sit down. He's not been eating. And so the disciples leave. It says that they head off to go get food down a half a mile away in the village of Sychar. They're going to be back in a moment. And Jesus starts this conversation with the woman. And the guys get back with the food. And what does Jesus say? I don't need the food anymore. He says, they're like, hey, we, we brought the food. And he's like, I have food that you don't know about. And they say, what? Who brought him food? Like they're literally asking, so wait, so did he eat? And he's saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He was energized at the well. He was energized on mission. It's almost like the disciples come back and they're like, we brought the food. He's like, I don't need the food. And they're like, well, then why did we buy this? Right? I mean, that's why we went to Sychar. You haven't eaten. And it says they pressed him over and over. Hey, seriously, Rabbi, you need to eat. Like you've been going miles and miles and you haven't eaten. Please Eat this. Verse 34, just put your eyes on it. My food is to do the will of him. This is a mission word right here. Of him who sent me and to finish his work. There's the crux of the passage. Everything revolves around that. That explains everything in the passage. That explains why we didn't go around through, the, through Jordan and all the way up and over in the north. We went straight through Samaria. Why? Because I'm sent to Samaria I got a conversation I need to have in about an hour with a woman at a well. He's sent there. She, he sees her coming up from the village and he says, let's talk about water and husbands and redemption. And what happens? Jesus in this text is both the sent to do the will of him who sent me and he's the 
sender. He finds her lost and finds her broken. He saves her and then he sends her back to Sychar. He's sent to her and then he sends her to bring others. What does Jesus do in John 4? He turns an outcast into an apostle. Surprising an apostle, she comes straight from Samaria, the first Samaritan apostle. She brings her neighbors back and comes to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? As as the people she's just called from her village walk in Jesus' direction up toward the well, and Jesus sees the people coming out from their houses in Sychar, and he tells his disciples, verse 38, I'm sending you to reap. He is the sent one, and he is the sender. And there have been implications that I hope you've been picking up on all along the way, even here, that maybe you can tease out in small group and talk about together. But I want to leave you with a few handles. And I want a couple of takeaway handles to be um, not evangelistic takeaways for evangelistic Navy SEALs. Right? You guys are already killing it. So I want to... I want to offer encouragement to those who are like, you know what, I just want to get out of the starting blocks. Like, how, do I, how do I begin to represent Jesus? What are the initial impulses of mission in the heart of a believer? So, number one, display compassion. Is your home, your apartment, a place of compassionate ministry? Do you listen well? Do you lob platitudes and truth bombs at people or do you listen well? Do you weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? Is there compassion in your heart that was created by the gospel? So often you find the words in the gospels, Jesus had compassion and verb here, right? In other words, Jesus' compassion led him to do something, led him to say something, right? He looks at the man who's who's born blind in John chapter 9 and he says, He finds out he's blind and he puts his fingers on his eyes. He reaches to the place where it's hurting. Something's broken here and he reaches out and touches the broken place. That's that's what compassion does. It touches broken places. It doesn't move away. It doesn't pull back. It moves in. It moves closer. I I heard a story this week, a podcast this week, and the guest on this podcast told a, a powerful story. She said, 13 years ago, I joined a group of Christian friends who were gonna spend the evening in downtown Baltimore in the streets of Baltimore doing ministry. And she said, I really was just there, I was curious. I wasn't really actually doing stuff. I was just curious and tagging along. And she said, that night changed my life because that night on the streets of Baltimore, she met, she met a girl who had been trafficked up and down I-95 corridor since the girl was 14 years old. And her name was Heather. And after Heather wasn't, quote, marketable, anymore. She was dropped on the streets of Baltimore and left to fend for herself, and she'd been there ever since. And this woman, Jean Allert, met Heather that night, and she said, I went home, and I wept so hard. She said, I was crawling on the floor. I couldn't even stand. I was so burdened. She said, I was so angry. She said, what was planted in me that night had to be described as a a seed of holy discontent. This can't go on. She said, my mantra was, to whom much is given, much is required. And she said, I did something. It might not have been wise. I sold my house, I sold my business, and I bought 23 acres outside of Baltimore to start something. And that's when she birthed her ministry, a long-term residence 
for victims of domestic human trafficking, appropriately named the Samaritan women. Here's the motto on the website. We believe that through a transformational relationship with Christ, your past is no longer who you are. You can be used for amazing things in him. Display compassion. And lest everybody think that the only way to display compassion is to sell the house and sell the business and buy 23 acres. What, what's a, what's a, another place, what's another way to apply this? And the next point is this. Simply, start where you're at. Start where you're at. Jill Briscoe is a compelling woman. She has served uh, on the board of World Relief for over 20 years. She began a ministry called Torchbearer. She educated at Cambridge many years ago, served at her, past, her husband's side in pastoral ministry for 30 years and in a church, encouraged believers through traveling to every continent in the world. She's taught and encouraged believers. Uh, best of all, she says, I'm Nan to 13 grandchildren, and that's a ministry in her life. She's just got ministry, just pouring out ministry in all directions from her life. And she stood, a couple of years ago, she stood before thousands of women at a women's conference 84 years old, and admonish them with these words. Go where you're sent, stay where you're put, and give what you've got. Go where you're sent, stay where you're put, and give what you've got. Right there, she started right there. The, the woman at the well, she saved and she sent. And it's almost like you can imagine her saying, where do you want me to go? And Jesus says, your town's a half a mile from here. Go there. You had a town full of people. Go, go right back to Sychar. That's where you'll start your work. And what does she do? She's running down the hill. She's running down. The, she can't spell theology. She doesn't know who John Piper is. Right? Is he a flautist? Like, is he a plumber? Like, what? Like, she has no clue. But she's found her voice, and in verse 28, you can hear her from a half a mile out. You can hear her coming, pounding the pavement down the streets of Sychar. And what she's saying, the only thing she knows, come meet a man. Forgot to ask him his name. Come meet a man who told me everything, and he loved me still the same. He loved me through the deepest pain in my life. I'm sorry, the siesta's over. You're all coming with me. Everybody's got to come meet the man. And Jesus, I just picture Jesus just beaming, just delighting in this brand new apostolic enthusiasm. Running through the streets, you've got to meet him. And in a way, the first harvest in the Gospel of John comes from the strangest place, the unexpected field of Samaria. And I love to picture, because it says that the Samaritans were coming out, the villagers were coming out toward Jesus, and that's when Jesus tells his disciples, and I think he's gesturing in the direction of the oncoming Samaritan people, and he says, boys, get your eyes up, open your eyes, look at the harvest, it's ready. They're coming from Samaria right now, let's reap. There are 446,000 unchurched people right out here in our streets in Shelby County, 
Jefferson County, and I suspect that as we engage in mission right here in Birmingham, we're going to find out that some people are a lot more ready than we thought. May we be faithful to live on mission where God sends us right here.